You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. All right. Well, good evening, everyone. We do begin the readout tonight with breaking news. As you just heard Ari Melber describing just moments ago, the House of Representatives voted to strip Georgia Congresswoman and QAnon devotee Marjorie Taylor Greene from her committee posts. But the other story here is that 199 Republicans voted to back Greene despite a recent past that includes physical threats against other members of Congress, including the speaker. It is another chapter in the tale of two parties, one focused on accountability and one that cowers in fear of its apparently extremist base. The sad truth is that Democrats in Congress had to discipline Margie Q. Green because House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy was unwilling to do so himself. McCarthy was willing to hold a secret ballot on the fate of Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney, his own third in command, who received a resounding, if anonymous, show of support to remain in Republican leadership last night. But he couldn't muster the courage to reject the QAnon Congresswoman. With this vote tonight, House Republicans, many of whom stood up and gave Green a standing ovation in a caucus meeting yesterday, will now be defined as supporting someone who backed calls for assassinating Speaker Nancy Pelosi and threatened the non-white women members of the squad in social media ads. She promoted an anti-Semitic and Islamophobic video that had reportedly been circulating among neo-Nazis, which claimed that, quote, an unholy alliance of leftists, capitalists, and Zionist supremacists have schemed to promote immigration and miscegenation with the deliberate aim of breeding us out of existence in our own homelands, unquote. Take that in. Mother Jones revealed that Green was a moderator of a Facebook group that was a hotbed of violent and racist hate speech. One user posted this image of a noose in that forum with the comment, start with Hillary and Obama. Green backed the conspiracy theory that the Parkland school shooting was staged. And she physically harassed an 18-year-old survivor of that shooting, David Hogg. She even said there's no evidence that a plane hit the Pentagon on 9-11. And just last month, she sat down with right-wing British columnist Katie Hopkins, expressing solidarity with someone who has compared African migrants to Britain to cockroaches. And all of this represents just a fraction of what Ms. Green has said she believes. However, with her committee assignments on the line today, she tried to walk back at least her support for QAnon. I stumbled across something, and this was at the end of 2017, called QAnon. And I got very interested in it. So I posted about it on Facebook. I read about it. I talked about it. I asked questions about it. And then more information came from it. The problem with that is, though, is I was allowed to believe things that weren't true.
later in 2018, when I started finding misinformation, lies, things that were not true in these QAnon posts, I stopped believing it. Allowed by who? Her speech was heavy on excuses and short on contrition. For instance, she said the media is just as guilty of spreading lies as QAnon itself. And as if to advertise that her faux contrition on the House floor was a fraud. Just this morning, Green played the victim in a fundraising appeal, repeating the very same kinds of lies and conspiracies about members of the squad that got her in trouble in the first place. The gentlewoman for Georgia, as we speak, continues to fundraise off these disturbing remarks. Uh, I'm not sure what she said to the Republican conference last night, uh, but last, just last night she tweeted about raising $175,000 off of this and said, quote, we will not back down, we will never give up. That's not contrition. For more, I'm joined by Angela Rye, former executive director of the Congressional Black Caucus, Charlie Sykes, editor-at-large of The Bulwark, and Brandon Wolf, Pulse nightclub survivor and vice president of the Drew Project. Thank you all for being here. And Angela Rye, first of all, welcome to the show. Uh, I'm really glad to have you on. And, and I really wanted to talk with you about this specific topic because you've been staff. You have been congressional staff. And so I, I am very curious what you make of what we just saw happen on the floor, where only re 11 Republicans voted to strip Marjorie Taylor Greene of her committee assignments, including education, given what I just, the laundry list that I just read about the things that she has said. Yeah, you know, Joy, what is so crazy is um, people kept saying, you know, Donald Trump is not so bad. It's fine. You know, he's just uh, flamboyant and arrogant and loud. But Harry Reid called Donald Trump the Republican Party's Frankenstein. And this is why this was the beginning of the monster that was constructed and built. This was the beginning of a problem um, that was only getting worse. Right. Like this is something that not only the Republican Party, but really since the foundation of America, we have dealt with issues around race, white supremacy, r racism, xenophobia, all of the phobias. And she is the latest version of the Republican Party's Frankenstein. So they can blame QAnon, but they can also have to blame themselves. To your point, Joy, 11 Republicans voting to um, remove her of her committee assignments, they should be calling for her resignation. She has threatened her own colleagues. This is just fresh off of the heels of what I have been calling the Capitol Hill terrorist attack. She is part of the problem. It is people like Marjorie Taylor Greene. She said in a tweet last night, they don't like me because I'm one of you. One of you is a white supremacist. One of you is someone who would target with violence, your own colleagues, and then raise money off of it. That is the exact opposite direction of where this country needs to be. So instead of talking about how we're going to continue to save lives, to ensure that people can survive in the middle of a pandemic, we are talking about this woman who has demonstrated that she is ignorant, that she is a bigot, and that she will threaten people who she has to put her own voting card in right next to. That's a problem. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise. 
the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. And the thing is, you know, to, to, to that very point, um, Charlie, we're talking about a workplace on top of everything else. Marjorie Taylor Greene was still lying about the squad, who are women of color, young women of color who've been elected. You had one black woman congresswoman have to move her office because this is also somebody who evades the gun. Uh, you know, she, she doesn't want to have her gun checked in and brags about being armed. Let me play you what Steny Hoyer had to say, because he, he talked about the Facebook ad that she ran in which she essentially it was sort of a fantasy about physically harming the squad members. Take a listen. They are people. They are our colleagues. And yes, you may have disagreements. But I don't know anybody, including Steve King, who you precluded from going on committees for much less. And this is an AR-15 in the hands of Ms. Green. I have never, ever seen that before. I urge my colleagues to look at that image and tell me what message you think it sends. Charlie, at this point, Republican Party candidates are getting the affirmation of all but 11, can 11 Republicans for essentially having a murder fantasy ad about people who are now her colleagues. I don't know how it gets any worse than that. Um, it will get worse than that, and unfortunately, you know, your comment about the workplace is interesting because Republicans always say they wish that government would uh, run more like a business. There is no business in America that would not fire Marjorie Taylor Greene for her behavior and her comments and her incitement of violence. But look, here's the Republican Party today. It is uh, no functioning immune system to crazy whatsoever. Um, and I thought it was interesting that Senny Hoyer mentioned the, uh, the, the case of Steve King. Because, you know, this is really political malpractice, this vote uh, to tonight by the Republicans. If they were concerned about political hygiene, if they were concerned about, you know, telling the country that they were a serious governing party, they would have taken care of this themselves like they did two years ago when Steve King was kicked off the Judiciary and the Agriculture Committee for questioning why white supremacy was so controversial and making racist comments. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene is in a completely different category. But instead of doing what they did with Steve King, we have the vote tonight. So what's changed? Well, what's changed is, of course, um, two more years of marinating in conspiracy theories and lies uh, under Donald Trump, who has been the conspiracy theorist in chief, um, but also watching how those conspiracy theories lead to acts of actual violence less than a month ago. So it's really extraordinary to me that Republicans had the opportunity to clean this up themselves. They've done it in the past. They refuse to do it. And now 199 of them are on record. The ads write themselves, basically backing Marjorie Taylor Greene's position in Congress.
it's a it's a it's a really bad moment for Republicans, but also it's a good moment, I think, to draw the line, especially after what happened on January 6th. Well, I mean, and Brandon, it's a th- this noxious combination of white supremacy, which Marjorie Taylor Greene isn't even embarrassed about. She didn't even the miscegenation piece. That's an oldie but goodie from like the 19th century. But, you know, a combination of that and this mania for guns, this mania for gun uh, guns everywhere. I want to play you. You you um, are the person who alerted me to the fact that Marjorie Taylor Greene actually was a high school student when there was a gun incident in her own school. So you'd think that she'd be more understanding of it. Here she is talking about that incident. And this is part of her defense of herself today. Oh, okay. So, uh, well, we don't have the sound of her of her um, actually defending herself, but that's okay. Uh, This was this happened when she was in 11th grade and a student at her high school held other classmates hostage for more than five hours. She defended herself in a media interview as well as on the House floor on that today. How does that in your way? What is that? What do you make of that as a defense saying that she had been in that kind of a situation in high school? What do you make of that as a defense of herself? Well, it makes it worse. Um, you know, what I told you initially was that I was shocked. And I think I can speak for everyone in this country that in 2021, it takes a whole lot to shock people. But I was shocked because I have been harassed by people like Marjorie Taylor Greene before. For the last five years, I have been stalked in public parks. I have been confronted in restaurants. I have been followed around at events. I've had phones thrust into my face asking me how I can sleep at night knowing that I invented a tragedy and the best friends that I buried in the summer of 2016. And every single time it happened, you know what I told myself? I didn't find myself angry. I just felt myself sad for those people. I told myself that it was because they couldn't process the pain of what I had been through, that they were using this conspiracy theory as sort of a a way of escaping it, a way to avoid grappling with the idea that anything so horrific could happen in this country. And I told myself that if anyone had ever had to grapple with that pain of staring at an empty seat at the dinner table, they would not be capable of treating someone like they were treating me. So I was shocked when I learned that this Congresswoman, by the way, someone who helps to run one of the most powerful countries in the world, has spent the last few years traumatizing survivors like me when she is also a survivor of school violence herself all along. It is almost incomprehensible for me how she can lay her head on the pillow at night, knowing the harm that she has inflicted and continues to inflict on people who are in incredible pain. You know, and Angela, she's to that very point. I mean, she you can wield incredible power on these committees. Yeah. You just lay out for us. What has she lost it, being stripped of these committee powers? I mean, education is pretty important. Uh, and also she's on a, a labor related committee. What kind of power is she now losing? Yeah, so the Education and Labor Committee chaired by Congressman Bobby Scott, they consider everything from wages to funding for schools, ensuring that um, schools are authorized at the same levels. If it's an HBCU, a TWI, an HSI, a Hispanic serving institution to a traditionally white institution, all of that is in consideration. Her ability to question and oversee the Department of Education, of course, um, it's an administration that she wouldn't be too friendly towards, so she would probably really help her constituents, whoever these people are that voted for her, um, to ask some really interesting questions, probably conspiracy laden. I think the other thing that we should be aware of is she was also stripped from the Budget Committee, which of course ensures that uh, they would enact 
the president's budget and make any revisions and changes um, based on wherever there may be disagreement, which there's not likely to be in the House, given they're in the same party. I think the challenge um, that she has now is what do you do when you don't have committee assignments? How are you serving your constituents? How are you serving the country? How are you serving the greater good? And so to me, the real question is, why wouldn't she be expelled? Is it going to be really tough to get it, get her expelled with two thirds vote required? Absolutely. Seeing as how um, most of the Republicans want her um, uh, 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 there, you know, in some ways they wouldn't even proceed with removing her from her committee assignments through the Republican conference, which they could have done. So them taking a more courageous step to vote with Democrats to expel her. I don't think that's likely to happen. Yeah. And really quickly, uh, Charlie and then Brandon, uh, you know, she had the free speech sign over her face uh, on, on the mask that she's re probably very reluctantly wearing. But that's the thing that she cares about the most. Right. She represents a part of the conservative movement in the Republican Party that cares less about policy than they do about being able to say whatever it is they want, no matter how offensive and hurtful it is. And they feel aggrieved because they can't do it in polite society. That's all they care about, it seems. Yeah, and they don't want to take responsibility for their words, and they don't want to be held accountable for their words or actions, and they don't think that there should be consequences. Now, um, until about five minutes ago, conservatives believed in that sort of personal responsibility. But look, uh, she wants to play the victim. Uh, she wants to make this about the cancel culture as opposed to a consequence culture, and uh, that's why she's raising money on all this and why her contrition was so phony. But this is a problem for Republicans, that they now reflexively regard any sort of criticism, any sort of political hygiene as an attempt to censor them. This isn't about censorship. This is about saying, if you promote violence, there is no place for you in this body. And that is not cancel culture. And very quickly, Brandon, yeah. at the same time, they want to be able to call normal political and social, um, you know, it, 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 things like Social Security, communism. So they, they think that that kind of, of speech is OK. Yeah, well, I think you're right. This is not a Marjorie Taylor Greene problem. This is a Republican Party problem. Let's be clear about this. Marjorie Taylor Greene is not an aberration or an outlier. She was an eventuality. This is what a lack of accountability looks like. This is the price we are all paying for political leaders embracing the white supremacist fringe in order to amass power. This is the cost of lowering the bar so far. You elect a racist, misogynist president who gets hundreds of thousands of people killed with his total disregard for the truth, all because you want to pack the courts with your favorite judges. These are Republican leaders who have for years weaponized the images of elected Democratic women of color in order to scare voters into believing that there's an America they won't recognize on the horizon. So Kevin McCarthy is wholly owned by the QAnon caucus. Um, and the question now is, with two years, what can Democrats do um, to protect voting rights and deliver real tangible results for people? Yeah, indeed. That is the essence of politics. Angela Rye, Charlie Sykes, Brandon Wolf. Great panel. Thank you all very much. And coming up, much more on tonight's House vote to strip Marjorie Taylor Greene of her committee assignments, but she's still there in Congress. Plus a readout exclusive, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg joins me in his first interview since making history, sworn in yesterday as the nation's first openly gay cabinet secretary. And he has big plans. Mayor Pete is now Secretary Pete, and he's coming up. The readout continues after this.
We are following breaking news tonight. The House has taken the rare step of stripping one of its members of her committee assignments. Marjorie Taylor Greene, a former QAnon devotee, has backed calls for assassinating Speaker Nancy Pelosi, promoted vile, racist, anti-Semitic and Islamophobic statements and peddled conspiracy theories about school shootings and 9-11. And yet only 11 Republicans joined Democrats in punishing her. Joining me now, Congressman Jason Crow of Colorado, who was an impeachment manager during the former president's first impeachment trial, and Elizabeth Newman, former assistant Homeland Security secretary in the Trump administration. And I, and I first want to get your response, Congressman Crow, to the fact that only 11 of your colleagues on the Republican side thought that Marjorie Taylor Greene should be stripped of her assignments that include the Education Committee. Yeah, well, there obviously should have been more. I mean, it should have been a unanimous vote. Uh, and I think it says a lot about where we are as a nation right now, uh, that only 11 folks on the other side of the aisle would come across to do that. Uh, it's uh, disappointing, to say the least. I mean, that's not the word to really capture it. Uh, but we have to continue to press. And I'm reminded about something that President Biden said in his inauguration address, where he said, you know, the, the story of our country is, is not overwhelming majorities coming together you talked about enough of us. You know, when we make progress and stand up against injustice and stand up against violence, enough of us can step forward to move things together. So I'm going to draw some inspiration and hope out of that, uh, that there were 11 that were able to show courage to do so. Hey, I'm going to stay with you for just one moment because you've got one of these in your state, too. Um, Lauren Boebert, who also tries to evade the mags and bring guns onto the floor, um, who's also said some pretty wacky things. Um, she might be a little QAnon curious as well. I mean, you served the United States Army, 82nd Airborne. You, you know, you've been deployed overseas. The reality is we go into countries that have insurgencies against a, a stable government right? And that may have ties to elements in the government. It's hard to argue that we're not that kind of country right now, isn't it? It makes it very hard for us to continue to promote democracy uh, and rule of law throughout the world. You know, I remember when I was in Iraq in 2003, right after the invasion, uh, and Iraqis in Baghdad started to come to me to adjudicate their disputes uh, because they said that there was no justice in Iraq. There were no courts. There was no recourse. And it was then that I really started to realize how special our system is and how unique it is, but also how fragile it is. So the thing about rule of law is you don't choose when you're going to apply it. Uh, you either do it all the time or you don't. Uh, and your last guest, Brandon, said this uh, really artfully. You know, we have to stand up against this because it's not just about Marjorie Taylor Greene. We're not talking about somebody standing on a street corner shouting absurdities. We're talking about a member of Congress sitting in Capitol Hill sowing conspiracy theories and inciting violence. And when that happens, it carries a hefty weight to it because we hold our leaders to a higher standard. And we, we see what happens when we don't push back against that. We, we've seen that with uh, President Trump, that it leads to violence. And that's why we took a stand tonight. And, you know, to go to you now, Elizabeth Newman, I mean, when it's in Iraq, it's the Sunni-Shia divide, and you have a country that's mostly Shia that had a, you know, Sunni dictator for a while, and then when they were knocked out, there was an insurgency that they were sort of the, the main component of. There was a governmental connection to the insurgency, those who were out of power then forming an insurgency. You now have this woman um, who 
is connected not just to racism, extreme racism, Katie Hopkins style white nationalism, um, but also to violence, violent fantasies that she put in her ads to run for Congress. We now have um, inside of the state of Georgia, where she's from, she's from North Georgia, the leader of a private paramilitary group. They're called the Georgia 11 percent martyrs. This group provided security to Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, the, the leader of that group has now said that he has formed alliances with other far right groups to advocate for Georgia's secession for the union. Georgia's not going to secede from the union. It's basically now a blue state. But how concerned are you that Marjorie Taylor Greene, despite not having committee assignments, she still has ties to what sure does sound like a paramilitary insurgent group in Georgia? Well, let's start with facts first. Um, there is no such thing as a legal private militia. All 50 states have laws on the books that ban private militias from conducting law enforcement activities, meaning if she was using them for security at her campaign rallies, that's illegal. Um, so the states need to do a better job of enforcing their laws. And quite frankly, we need to do a better job of educating people in the country that uh, there is no such thing as a legal private militia. Um, there's a lot of uh, beliefs out there that it is a Second Amendment activity, but in fact, the militia referenced in the Second Amendment, uh, which has been upheld by a conservative Supreme Court justice in 2008, uh, that is the National Guard. It is not a private militia. Um, so if it, that fact alone tells me that she is at, at a minimum ignorant, if, if not um, uh, willfully acting with an enemy, uh, you know, what we would consider a domestic enemy of the state. And as an elected official, um, where you swear an oath of office, uh, swear an oath to the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic, you've got a conflict there that needs to be resolved. I personally think uh, that um, there are enough grounds here for expulsion. I'm glad that she uh, had her committee assignment uh, stripped. We need to stop playing footsie with these extremist groups. They have a radical ideology. They want to overthrow the United States government. They are an enemy. We need to treat it seriously so more people don't accidentally stumble into this extremism. And the more you have a person like her talking about this, it creates this mainstreaming effect where it seems like it's okay to join a militia. It's okay to join a white supremacist group like the Proud Boys. It is not okay. It is illegal. And they have very um, uh, violent aims uh, at, the, at the end of their ideology. You don't want to be associated with them. Therefore, get anybody in our government that's associated with them out. Uh, that's the best way to start to stem uh, the, the threat that we're facing. You know, and, you know, Congressman, we've already got now the Pentagon um, ordering what they're calling a pause. The first African-American defense secretary, Lloyd Austin, um, the former general, Log Austin, um, ordering each branch of the military to stand down at some point over the next 60 days to discuss the threat posed by white supremacy and similar extremism within its ranks. We had people with military credentials that were a part of the insurgency. We had um, the off-duty police officers that were a part of what happened on 1-6. We've now essentially had a domestic, not essentially, we had a domestic terrorist attack inside our country, and it's led by a guy named Donald Trump. He's still a free man right now in the state of Florida. He still commands the absolute allegiance of people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's still in Congress, still wields power. How concerned are you that this man, who's now said he's not going to testify in his impeachment trial, still essentially is the head of an insurgency movement, a paramilitary white nationalist insurgency? 
Well, I'm very concerned, and anybody paying attention should be very concerned. You know, you should be concerned about the fact that a very large number of the people that were in that mob on January 6th were people that come from positions of public trust, either current or former military, uh, with law enforcement and others. Uh, and we have a problem. You know, we have a domestic uh, homegrown terrorist movement that actually is not new. You know, the, the origins that go back decades, uh, looking at Waco and Ruby Ridge and uh, other uh, incidents that have uh, helped grow this movement. But certainly January 6th is a catalyzing event. You know, a lot of these terrorist movements have catalyzing events uh, that really propel the movement forward. And we have to be very diligent. We're going to be dealing with this for years to come. This is not new uh, and it's not going to go away tomorrow. So we have to make sure that we are dealing with this first uh, by ensuring the integrity of military and law enforcement organizations are, are going to be called upon to deal with this, that are going to be on the vanguard of addressing the domestic terror threat. So I'm going to be pushing uh, Secretary yeah. Austin very hard to make this a priority and make sure that we're rooting this out of our military. It would, it would help not to have people who have, you know, sort of okayed violent white nationalist uh, ideas uh, in Congress, but here we are where we are. Congressman Jason Crow, thank you very much. Elizabeth Newman, thank you as always. And still ahead, America's newly minted transportation secretary, Pete Buttigieg, is here for his first official interview. We will talk about how he is making history, plus how he plans to address racial and social inequities and high-speed rail. You won't want to miss it. Stay, stay right there. So unless your train is late or your car literally won't start, people don't generally spend much time thinking about transportation. But it can be the greatest equalizer or do tremendous harm, sometimes all at once. Take, for example, highways. Dwight D. Eisenhower's greatest achievement, besides being a hero of World War II, achieving the desegregation of some Southern schools, and in my humble opinion, being the last truly great Republican president, his greatest achievement was the creation of the great national inter interstate highway system during the 1950s. He would later write that he made it a personal and absolute decision to see that the nation would benefit by it. And it was a breathtaking achievement, connecting the country with more than 40,000 miles of highway. But in some ways, it showed that the price of progress in this country is often paid by people of color, as many of the highways cut an ugly swath through neighborhoods like historic Overtown in Miami, once considered the Harlem of the South. Its little Broadway was a mecca of black culture, anchored by the Lyric Theater. Jazz greats like Duke Ellington, Ella Fitzgerald, Louis Armstrong, and Billie Holiday would perform into the night after their performances on segregated Miami Beach. They would say, I'm going over town. And that's how it got its name, since even the biggest black stars weren't allowed to sleep in hotels in segregated white Miami Beach. The thriving Overtown, with its own little shops and theaters, was vivisected by Eisenhower's Highway and became a slum, which is now emerging as the latest target for gentrification in Miami. In fact, transportation has long been a highly racialized issue in cities across this country, not just Miami. But on the flip side, transportation could be the key to making America a more equal place. But post-Eisenhower, Republicans don't love that idea at all. Take Florida's Republican Senator Rick Scott. In one of his first acts in his former role as Florida governor, 
In 2011, he turned down nearly two and a half billion dollars in stimulus money from President Obama for a high speed rail line from Orlando to Tampa. And who was the man in the Obama administration pushing for massive national investments in high speed rail? Why, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. That's right. Amtrak Joe championed the plan to promote the construction of a national high speed intercity rail network because he gets it. Having logged thousands of round trips between Wilmington and Washington, D.C. on Amtrak during his decades as a senator. It would seem Republican opposition to transportation advances is based on nothing more than a mania for letting private entities be the only ones to benefit from everything, including transportation, evidenced by Rick Scott's own backflip on high speed rail years later. The wealthy former hospital executive and his wife invested in a company linked to a private company building high-speed rail in Florida. Ta-da! Scott tried and failed to grill President Biden's nominee for Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg during his confirmation hearing. And here's how that went. There was one study that said the Green New Deal will cost, what, almost $100 trillion. So how, you know, what impact, if, if we did something like that, what impact would that have on, uh, on our economy and jobs and all of our businesses that are competing globally? So are you referring to the president's climate proposal or? No, the, green, the one that was proposed and everybody talked about during the presidential race. The president won uh, our primary and the election, and, and uh, that'll be the vision that, that goes forward. Bloop. After the break, the brand new secretary of transportation, Pete Buttigieg, joins me live. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Okay, ready? Raise your right hand. I, Peter Buttigieg. I, Peter Buttigieg. Do solemnly swear. Do solemnly swear. That I will support and defend. That I will support and defend. The Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States. That I will well and faithfully discharge. That I will well and faithfully discharge. The duties of the office. The duties of the office. Which I am about to enter. Which I am about to enter. So help me God. So help me God. Congratulations, Mr. Yesterday, the nation's first black and Asian woman vice president swore in the country's first openly gay cabinet secretary, Pete Buttigieg, one-time presidential candidate and former mayor of South Bend, Indiana. And I am joined now by the self-same Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg. I want to first thank you for making this your first interview since your confirmation. I got to take you back to that moment. Uh, what was going through your mind? I mean, you're standing there making history and breaking the Internet, you, Chaston, and the vice president. What's, what was going through your mind in that moment? Oh, it's extraordinary. You know, the vice president said to me just before we stepped out there, make sure to be present because it'll go by quickly. And, and she was right. And I'm glad she did. Uh, but when I pause just to think about what it meant, uh, you know, to have my hand on the Bible that my grandfather gave my mother when, when she was uh, a child held by my husband, 
being uh, taking an oath administered by the first woman, first black, first Asian uh, vice president. What what an extraordinary moment. The second gentleman stopped by uh, and, and uh, uh, joined us. He's uh, friends with Chaston. And just to be able to say a sentence like, uh, you know, the vice president and her husband uh, uh, were there with uh, me and my husband, Chaston, just to say a sentence like that tells you how much has changed in 2021, even though we've got a long way to go as a country. Now, see, I could spend the whole rest of the of our interview asking you, have you moved yet? Like, how are you loving D.C.? But I'm not going to do that because my uh, my I am one of the maybe small number of people in America that I am obsessed with trains. I love trains. I think trains are the most civilized way to travel. I'm ex- I am actually excited about the secretary of transportation position in general. But you being in it changes the game. Not only is it making history, but you have a chance to, as a former mayor, really dig in and make some changes. How long is it going to take before I get my high speed rail? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I can't wait. I feel the same way you do. And as you know, the president's a big believer in passenger rail, too. Uh, look, we, we've been asked to settle for less in this country. And uh, I just don't know why uh, people in other countries ought to have better train service and, and more investment in, in, in high-speed train service um, than Americans do. Uh, you know, uh, Amtrak has done a heroic job with the constraints that have been placed on them. Uh, now we've got to take things to the next level. Uh, you know, uh, uh, you look at what, not just famously, uh, you know, uh, let's say uh, our fellow, uh, uh, you know, our, our counterparts in, in Japan are, are able to enjoy, but, uh, you know, really across the world, a place like uh, the UK or, or, or Turkey, I want the U.S. to be leading the world when it comes to access to high-speed uh, rail, and, and I think we have a real opportunity to do that, especially with the bipartisan appetite for real investments that we have before us this year. Well, it felt bipartisan at a certain point. I mean, we had infrastructure week, like literally every week during the previous administration. They never actually did it. Republicans talk a good game saying they want it, too. It creates lots of jobs. There's lots of opportunity. But they keep hedging because they want it to be privately owned. They, you know, that was the Rick Scott issue, that, that they didn't like the idea of the public investing in high-speed rail. They wanted to just be private companies. How do you break that logjam If you could answer that. And then also, how do you ensure that we don't get another overtown, that we're not, you know, vivisecting communities of color and putting people of color in a worse situation than they started? Yeah, that piece is especially important. In fact, today is uh, uh, Transportation Equity Day because it's the birthday of Rosa Parks. Now, I know when you think about all the areas of federal government that deal with racial justice, people don't always think first of the Department of Transportation, but the example of Rosa Parks reminds us how much is at stake. Uh, and as you said, uh, you know, it's not just about things like, uh, uh, you know, what the Montgomery bus boycott was about and equitable access to transit, but it's the fact that sometimes, you know, investment came to uh, black neighborhoods all right, but it came in the worst possible way, a highway destroying that neighborhood. You, uh, you, you shared that, that Overtown example. There are examples from Nashville to Richmond to, to Pittsburgh. And uh, we've got to make sure, first of all, that our policies recognize that history, uh, that history of harm, where this magnificent thing of, uh, of creating the interstate highway system was so often done with terrible consequences for communities of color. And now we have a chance to get it right. We have a chance to make investments that expand opportunity instead of cutting people off from opportunity. The 
build and enrich neighborhoods instead of breaking them up. And that's got to be central to uh, the federal transportation policy vision, but also as we're working with different communities, uh, with states and, and cities and towns and counties and territories and, and tribes. Uh, you know, tribal citizens in this country have a lot at stake in, in whether we have equitable transportation funding. Now's our chance to do all of that and more. So it, it's the right moment to be looking at the equity implications of you know, everything we do in the federal government, but certainly when it comes to transportation. Yeah and transit. So everyone has lots of ideas for you. I'm sure that you're getting lots of people who are calling you, texting you. Everyone who has your cell phone number is probably reaching out to you saying, hey, I've got ideas. New York Magazine did nine transportation projects. Uh, we'll just put them up on the screen that they said that you should get involved in first. Electrify every fleet, eliminate the gas tax, dig the gateway tunnel. There's like so much. But we had a viewer who also had another idea and a question. And this was Sam Houston, one of our viewers who asked, I'd love to hear about investments in bridges, highway and infrastructure to help us prepare for rising sea levels. Uh, do you have an idea? about dealing with that? Yeah, you know, our planning has to reflect the realities of climate change. I mean, first of all, we got to act to prevent climate change from getting worse. Uh, remember, if you look at greenhouse gases, uh, the biggest sector in the U.S. going into that is transportation, which means we can also be the biggest part of the solution. But no matter how good we get, uh, as we must with electrification uh, and reducing emissions, uh, we still know that sea level rise is happening right now. And, uh, you know, the reality is a, a, a floodplain map uh, 50 or 100 or even 30 years from now is going to look different uh, than it might have when it was drawn up. So these are the kinds of things that our transportation plans need to take into account. Uh, you look at uh, the experience of Sandy, uh, ju just uh, one example of how, uh, you know, uh, planning and uh, when it comes to roads and uh, bridges and tunnels, uh, needs to account for the increased frequency and severity of these weather events. And, in fact, the water is just plain higher. And whether you're in a coastal community or a river city in the Midwest, like where I come from, uh, this change is happening. Uh, we got to make sure it is factored into our plans. And, you know, a lot of cost-benefit analysis goes on, uh, rightly so, with any government spending. Uh, when we're talking about transportation, we got to make sure the costs and the benefits are done in a way that actually accounts for climate reality and climate opportunity. I think this is why uh, you were called uh, potentially Biden's secret to the climate agenda. Uh, we're going to keep you here, please, if you don't mind, uh, over one quick commercial break. So Secretary Pete Buttigieg is going to stay with us. And when we come back, one senator's unique criticism of Secretary Buttigieg's commitment to justice. And we, too, remember Rosa Parks on what would have been her 108th birthday. Secretary Buttigieg tweeted today that his department, as he just mentioned, is committed to honoring her legacy by ensuring equity is central to everything that we do. We'll be right back. After Pete Buttigieg's confirmation on Tuesday, one of the Republicans who voted against his confirmation, Tennessee Senator Bill Haggerty, cited Buttigieg's plans, quote, to use the department for social, racial and environmental justice causes in his reasons for voting against the confirmation. And Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg is back with me. I certainly hope you do plan to do what you were accused of in that moment. Do you? <laughs> to use your position for equity. Absolutely. I, I... Uh, I, I thought that was something that everybody could get on board with. Uh, look, why would we want social, environmental, or economic, or racial injustice uh, to be attached to our transportation policy? Um, this is a chance to get it right. And look, every time you are spending taxpayer dollars, every time you are shaping American lives, you got to be thinking about whether that is being done in a way that is just 
or unjust. And, uh, you know, at this moment where the whole country is wrestling with these issues, uh, that should be part of even the most mundane decisions uh, because it affects every part of life in this country. Yeah. Um, let, let's talk really quick about airlines. We talked about trains. There are a lot of furloughs happening, a lot of layoffs going on. The airline industry is hurting because of the pandemic. Do you, in your view, should there be another airline bailout or is there some other way to help that industry? Well, there's a, a lot of active conversation going on right now to make sure that there is the support to uh, get uh, everybody safely in the air. And a lot of it is making sure that uh, we have that, that perception and reality uh, of safety so that uh, the demand returns. Uh, you know, one thing that uh, airlines were compelled to do earlier was uh, kind of figure out one at a time what their policies were going to be. Uh, it's why I think the uh, president's swift action on a mask mandate for airplanes and airports uh, really helps the airlines focus on their business and clears up that question and makes it the same across all the carriers. Uh, there are so many uh, Americans whose livelihoods depend on the aviation sector. Uh, you know, folks we think about uh, uh, like uh, uh, pilots and, and flight attendants and, and ground crews at, at airports, but also folks you might not think about as much who are involved in the supply chains, even building aircraft who are involved in this too. We've got to make sure that we support this vitally important sector in our country, and uh, we're going to work very hard to do that in, in the department and in the administration. And the, the, you, we can't leave out um, cars when we talk about the whole transportation kind of matrix. Most people, that's the way that they get around uh, if they you know, are not using a bike, et cetera. I, my, you know, my lease is coming up very soon for, for my truck. And I'm thinking, you know what, I want to try to get a hybrid or try to get electric. But in a lot of cases, these are really expensive, right? How can we get to the scale where we can start to convert our automobile sort of the glut of cars that we have on the road to more electrics, to, sort of, to make that more accessible? Well, I think you use the exact right word, which is scale. There's remarkable invention and innovation going on. But what really drives the cost down is when it represents a big chunk or even the majority of sales instead of a small percentage. Now, if you look at what uh, companies are doing, uh, including some of the, the traditional automakers in, in Detroit uh, who are getting very ambitious about electric vehicles and not just smaller cars, but uh, uh, pickups and, and other vehicles, too, it's incredibly exciting. Uh, now, Two things need to happen, I think, for most Americans to be able to uh, make that choice. First, the cost has to uh, uh, has to, to pencil out. And, uh, you know, they are generally cheaper to own. Obviously, you don't have to fill them up with gas. There are uh, fewer moving parts. But that, that upfront sticker, uh, we need to uh, watch that come down. But then we also just got to make sure everybody knows uh, they can be confident of being able to find a charging station. Uh, the president's commitment to create a half million charging stations across the country, I think, is a very yeah. important piece of that. Last thing I'll mention, federal government buys a lot of cars. Uh, so we got to make sure we're leading by example. Mm. That's another thing the president is challenging the agencies to do. Well, uh, Secretary Pete Buttigieg, if anybody can make transportation cool, the, the, you're now the captain of planes, trains, and automobiles. I think you can do it. Toddle over to Fox at some point. See if you can talk some Republicans into voting for this stuff, because I think it would be really helpful. <laughs> Secretary Pete Buttigieg, okay, uh, congratulations. All, all the best to you and Chastin. Thank you very much. Appreciate you. All right. Finally, uh, as I mentioned earlier, it was on this day in 1913, 108 years ago, that civil rights hero Rosa Parks was born. She's notably remembered for 
becoming the symbolic spark of the 1955 Montgomery bus boycott and fighting against racial segregation when she refused to give up her seat near the front of the bus to a white man. But her activism went far beyond that. For more than 30 years, Parks worked to reform our judicial system so that black women who were assaulted could have confidence that they would be fairly heard, a fight that continues today. That is tonight's readout. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. <laughs> 